Okay, so as Rob said, we're starting Lent this week, and so what we're going to do during Lent is we're kind of going to take a pause in Exodus. Every year when I do Lent, I fit it into whatever the series is. So you may remember earlier in Exodus, in Exodus 3, when Moses is talking to God, God's telling him he's going to lead them out, and he's arguing with God, I don't want to do that. So finally, he asks a good question, who... What's your name? What are people going to ask me what's your name? Okay, now in the context of this part time in the world, none of the gods gave their name. They had to figure it out. And so here we have a God that's actually speaking, which the gods never did. And, and Moses, I mean, he just said, well, I don't even know what your name is. And so the English is, I am. Tell him I am has sent you. And that raises a core theological question, which relates to the rest of the Bible and to our lives. I am what? And so as he walks them through the uh, Exodus, he begins to answer that question. But it's a question they didn't even know to ask because none of the gods ever did anything for people. So they didn't even bother to think about why would, who is this God and is he going to care for us? Because they were interested in appeasing the gods. So God has to actually answer the question because they don't know to ask it. And the way he does it, May remember, I said, rather than take them from Egypt up the Mediterranean coast to the Promised Land, he takes them south and east over to the Sinai Peninsula, the desert, away from civilization. We've talked about that. And so this is where he's going to begin to build a relationship with them and care about them. And so uh, this is where he begins to answer the question of, I am what? And so the way he does it is he takes them to a place where they have no water. Well, then they begin to say, well, how are we going to get water? God says, I'll give it to you. So then he takes them to a place where they have no food. Well, wait a minute. We don't have no food. We don't have any food. Well, how are we going to do that? And uh, God says, I'll provide food. You want food? There it is. And then another place where there's no water. And then he malachites. How do we defend ourselves? And God says, I'll defend, I'll defend you. I'll protect you. And so he's actually answering a question they haven't asked yet. Does this God care? So then he makes his way over to Mount Sinai, which is where we stopped last week, Exodus 19, and he begins to enter into a covenant. So, pause. During Lent, we're going to look at Jesus' seven I am statements in John. So Jesus begins to fully explain what I am means. And every one of the I am statements is an invitation, just like the covenant we saw last week, we're going to see this week, is a covenant into a deeper walk with the Lord. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, come to me. I am the good shepherd. Come to me and you'll find protection and care. And so all the seven I am statements are in directly response, direct response to Exodus 3 when he says, I am. I am who? And so Jesus explains it. So we're going to pause Exodus and, and look at those seven statements to answer the question from Exodus 3. Okay. So Lent is a very interesting time. You know, Lent was formed a long, long time ago in the history of the church. And one of the things that we're going to challenge you through the Lenten season, when we talk about sacrifice, sacrifice has nothing to do with what you give up. That's not a biblical definition at all, okay? It's great. Don't hear me wrong. It's good to give up stuff. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. Sacrifice is framed in the language of what do you do that's costly for someone else, it may involve giving up something, okay? 
something, either a habit or resources or things like that. But it's always framed sacrifice in what you give, what you do for someone else that costs you something. So all the way through Lent, we're going to challenge you. What is it you're going to give up and what are you going to do? How is that going to benefit someone else? Okay, how is that sacrifice going to help someone else? Which is, we're going to see today, the very heart of the law. It's the very heart of the Mosaic law. That's why Jesus can sum up the law in the two great commands. One from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Today we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments, and that's well known to people. Because this is actually the stipulation part of the law. So the Ten Commandments are the actual rules, and everything from then on through the rest of Exodus into Leviticus, the the holiness code, those are all explanations of how to live it out, okay? So those, everything after this is up for modification and changes as culture changes. So the Leviticus was written, the Mosaic Law originally was written when they're a group as a nation, and they're wandering around. Then they get to the promised land, now they spread out. And Deuteronomy reiterates the Mosaic Covenant, but it begins to make modifications because now they're all scattered. So then when you get to the New Covenant, then uh, what you find out is that it gets adjusted again because now we have the faithful scattered all over the world, not just in one country. And so the Mosaic Law is adaptable and flexible and fluid to make that into account. But the Ten Commandments are the core. They're the, they're the parameter, the fence post that you, that you might think of to keep a country safe, okay? One of the questions I get regularly because of the debate that's going on in our country trying to remove the Ten Commandments from, you know, government office because that's Christian. No, it's not Christian. It's not that at all. To understand these Ten Commandments, you have to understand cultural anthropology, the study of humanity, And so this has nothing to do with Christianity. It has everything to do with our humanity and who God is. And so it's disastrous to move away from the Ten Commandments. If you want to see what a country looks like that doesn't honor any of these ten, come with me. And you'll see everything from corruption and greed, slavery. You'll see chaos. You'll see it. And so, do these Ten Commandments apply to everyone? Yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. And a country that does not follow these Ten Commandments is headed for destruction. And you'll understand why in just a second. Uh, I hope I do a good job of explaining it. But the context of the Ten Commandments, remember, God is meeting them. So last week, he gave them an invitation into the covenant. It wasn't about coercion. Okay? All the covenants in the ancient world are real simple. I'm a king. And uh, I just, my God is stronger than your God, so we just took your whole little city, uh, we just took you all into slavery, okay? The standard military practice was we're going to kill all the men, so that way you're no threat. And, um, and then we will take the women, the gold, and the children, they become ours. And here's the covenant you're going to make. In other words, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, and you better do it, or I'm just going to kill you, Okay? And so it was all based on subjugation and slavery. And our God comes along with the format of a covenant, but he turns it and he makes it in the form of an invitation. The very first thing, now remember where we are, they're three months out of uh, Egypt and they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai in the desert. And they've heard Genesis through Exodus up until now. They've heard the story of how they got here. 
but they haven't met God. They've seen his power, but they haven't met him. He's about to meet them now, okay? This is the day where he meets them, all right? And he invites them into a covenant. He said, remember what I just did. I carried you out of slavery in Egypt on eagle's wings to freedom. Therefore, if you obey me, you have the choice. That's human dignity. If you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests. But wait, we're slaves. I know. You get to be priest on my behalf to the rest of the world. I'll make you a prized possession out of the whole earth. Everything belongs to me, but I'm going to make you my prized possession. You'll be my people, and I will be your God. It's up to you if you obey me. It's an invitation. Just like Leviticus, when you offer a sacrifice, here's how you do it. No other covenants like that. You do it the way the king said, or you die. Okay, you're punished. And God is making an invitation. He's inviting the people into this relationship. So here he is at Mount Sinai, and he's going to meet them. So here's what you expect. A God who shows them his love, how much he cares for them. Here's what actually happens. Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, remember the last week we talked about the third day? Whenever you see that phrase in Scripture, that's theological code word for God's about to reveal His glory. Okay? On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and there was lightning. There was a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. A trumpet begins to blow. Okay? Everyone in the camp started to tremble. They're terrified. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, with cover with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from the mountain, right? And the mountain trembled violently. There's this incredible earthquake. Okay, the sound of the trumpet goes louder and louder and louder. That's how God introduced himself. What would you do? Ah. We're going to learn a little bit later. They ran to the other side of the valley. He terrified them. And so his very first introduction is, I am God and you are not. I can do whatever I want. Because when he gives the Ten Commandments, he wants them to recognize, I'm not like any other God. You see, the God that we serve is outside of creation. All the other gods were part of creation. And so I can determine what's going to happen. And then what he's going to do is he's going to give them ten rules that relate to who they are as humans. Okay, by the way, when this is all over in Exodus 19, um, they go to, Moses goes and finds them. Okay, verse 18 of chapter 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning, heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They ran. They stayed at a distance. They ran to the other side of the valley. I love this passage. Moses has to go trekking after them to get to them. So they say to Moses, speak to us yourself. We don't want to hear God speak. Okay? They had never heard of God speak because we're going to die. And Moses says these words that we hear all throughout the rest of the Bible. Moses said, do not be afraid don't be afraid. This command is all the way through the Bible. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will now be inside of you. You know who he is. Now you can say absolutely with confidence, my God is far bigger than your God. 
My dad's bigger than your dad. Okay? So the very first thing God does to introduce himself is to this incredible earthquake. He's in control. And he wants that message across. So then when he gives these Ten Commandments, they begin to sense how different this is from the ancient world. These Ten Commands, they're nothing, nowhere in the ancient world. You can look up any law code from the nations. We have many of them now. You can read them online. Nothing like this. It's whatever the king said. And God said, no, I know who you are because I made you. What did I make you for? I made you for the deepest joy possible. And here is the way to freedom. So we've walked all these weeks through Exodus, and here's the secret to freedom right here. So this, he's leading them to freedom, not slavery. The covenant was not a means of salvation. It was a means of how to live out a good relationship with this loving God. That's what it was. Because they've already been redeemed. They've already been taken out of slavery, out of Egypt. So this is no longer about salvation. Just like the commands in the New Testament. Those aren't, we don't keep those for salvation. That's how to live in relationship with God and with each other. <coughs> so the covenant does lead us to freedom. And the New Testament authors saw that in Colossians chapter 1. Paul talks about this. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Okay, this is a direct line back to the story where we are in the story. Okay, later on in Romans 6, he's going to say he's led us out, to sla- led us out of slavery. So he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. There's no way I can tell you how dark the world was. And why? In whom we have redemption, not to earn it, and we have forgiveness of sins. We finally have a God that we don't have to appease. Do you realize that? That's ancient mythology. You have to appease the gods. No, we don't. We don't have to appease God. He's already pleased. He's already forgiven us. He's already redeemed us. Peter says it a little bit differently in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is words right out of last week, Exodus 19. If you obey me, I will make you, you will be my people, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, out of all the world, you'll be my special possession. Peter quotes, this is the introduction to the covenant, but he says, this is who we are now in Christ. Why? Why did he do that? so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's a direct line right back to the Exodus story. You could say out of slavery into freedom. Same stuff. And so the entire New Testament is all framed based on this story right here in Exodus. And they all got it. The authors got it. Okay, the Ten Commandments. Picture a nation, as we work down through these Ten Commandments, picture a nation that doesn't have these rules in place. Yeah, there's a lot of nations around the world, over half of them, that don't follow these. Come with me and you'll get to see the chaos, the confusion, the the disregard for human dignity, the corruption, the greed, the horror with which they treat one another, the enslavement in which they find. Yeah, we still have enslavement in the world, by the way. Okay? And so these Ten Commandments were designed to create a cultural experience that brought us to freedom and introduces dignity into the world. And it seems normal to you because you were raised in this country. 
It's not normal. It's not. Countries all over the world don't have these Ten Commandments, and the people there are treated really horribly. Okay, now I'm never going to argue that our country's perfect. We're not. We've got a lot of skeletons in the closet. We have our own stuff. But prior to this right here, no nation had this perspective. The perspective was very simple. My God is stronger than your God, and I'm going to take everything you have. They had the philosophy of acquiring wealth, not creating wealth. Wealth is considered a fixed commodity, and I'm going to steal your wealth. And that's the history of the nations of the world. The United States was the first nation after Israel. Again, don't hear me saying that we're the salvation of everything. Don't hear that. But we were the first nation after Israel that was predicated on the belief that we can create wealth. We don't have to steal it. Now, we have stolen some things. I get it. But the core fundamental philosophy comes right out of this right here. That's why so many of our government offices have the Ten Commandments plastered up on the wall somewhere. Different philosophy. We can create wealth. So therefore, we need to give people the opportunity to do that. That's what we are founded on. Okay? So when I read these down through here, they're going to sound natural to you. They're not natural. They're not part of human nature. That's why we have whole countries that don't follow any of this. The, the world is still based on power and greed. Get used to it. Okay? And we're beginning to see what happens in our country when these principles are dissolved. So, yeah, I never get into politics, do I? Till today. Okay? Paul says we are citizens of heaven. At the beginning of Philippians 1, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the verb for the word politics. Polituomai. Okay? And so what he's saying is live as like your citizens of heaven, what God intended you to be. And what are those citizens? Right here. You're about to hear it. The Ten Commandments are the heart of the Mosaic Law. Every other command is learning, is learning their case law. It's examples of how to live it out. But this is the actual stipulations of the Mosaic Law, which still apply today. Every one of these is repeated in the New Testament. Okay? And if we follow these, every other problem that we have will disappear. The whole haves and have-nots, social economic disparity, immigration, the border, all those things. I'm not going to get into that discussion. That's way above my pay grade. But I can tell you this. If every one of us followed this, then those problems would disappear. Cody asked me after the first service, what would it be like to have a nation where every single person followed these Ten Commandments? Wow. Be incredible. It would be incredible. So, this is the framework that I decide who to vote for. Right here. Of all the candidates, these 10 statements decide for me who to choose. So, let's jump into them. So, 10 commandments for for first four deal with the first law, okay, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second set, the next six, deal with the second command, love your neighbor as yourself. So the entire law is framed around the great commands, okay? What's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. It's real simple. A God God is anything that distracts you from worshiping the one true living God, okay? Could be money, could be prestige, 
could be conquests, could be whatever, you fill it out. Whatever, whatever makes you feel insecure, that you have to go take care of it yourself. That's why I asked a couple different times over the last month, where's your retirement? Where's your confidence? Is it in your IRA, your pension, your retirement fund, your 401k, or is it in the Lord? Where is it? No other gods. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth or beneath or in the waters below. Those are the fish and all that. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Okay, now this verse is repeated numerous times in the Old Testament and we always quote the first part but not the second part. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay, we talk about generational sin. That's a big thing in parts of the church. Some of you have gone through that. I know because you've told me, you know, that the sins of the parents are going to be passed on for three or four generations. You miss the whole intent of why he said it by misquoting it. Here's the second half. But, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commands. What he's saying is this. Your sin and the impact of it is this big compared to my grace. Thousands of generations. That's how big it is. And every time this, every time this is quoted, it has a second part. And we never include the second part when we quote it. He's showing you how big he is. How wonderful he is. How loving and kind. No other God did this. Okay? Now, don't think when it says don't make for yourself an image, don't think of a little carved idol. Don't think of that. An image is something that represents the violation of the first one. You have a God. So maybe, maybe money is your God. And so you want to show it off. So you buy a big house, a fancy car. Maybe that's your, well, you have an idol is you get to show it. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I have noticed something among some of our wealthy people over the years. I go visit them, and they have this large, beautiful house. You know what I think when I walk in, and I see this incredible house? I say, wow, God has really blessed you. This is incredible. I love wealthy people. I do. We need wealthy people in our church. We don't need greedy people. There's a big difference, okay? And so, but I, it's astonishing how many times I've walked in to this nice house. And you know what they say to me? This is God's. What do you mean by that? Well, God's the one that, you know, made this happen. This is his house. It's his house, so it's okay if I, if I invite uh, 20 uh, people that are living on the street to come stay here? Well, no. Well, then it's not his house. It's your house. Why do you feel the need to say that? It's called guilt. Why don't instead say, God has blessed me, and this is what I have? Why don't just be honest? Paul says in the pastoral epistles, enjoy the blessings that God has given you. That's at one end. On the other end, he says, be generous. And you get to figure out where in the middle that greed and generosity is. It's not my issue. I got my own issues. I have to deal with me, right? And if God has blessed you with a big house or a fancy car, I don't care if you ride a bicycle or drive a Maserati. It doesn't matter to me as long as that's not an idol that you're showing off. Don't make it an idol. Just simply say, God has blessed me, right? God has blessed me. I was with a couple overseas, and she really wanted to buy a piece of artwork. And she knows I'm a pastor. 
So we're looking in the store, and, uh, and, and you could tell she really wanted to buy it. It's an expensive piece of artwork. And, but I'm standing there right next to her like a conscience, you know? And I finally said, okay, okay. I, I recognize what you're doing. I said, do you realize that I am grateful that God has given you the wealth so that you can afford this? This is great. I can't afford it, but you can. That is a wonderful gift from the Lord. And she said, really? And I said, buy it. Hang it on the wall. Don't make it an idol. Let it remind you of God's goodness. She had tears and bought it. You know? So if God has blessed you and you have a big, nice house or a nice car, don't feel guilty. Just let it remind you who the Lord is. Don't make it an idol. Then he goes on. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This one has been totally twisted in culture. That means don't curse God. That's not what it means at all. People do it all the time. Oh my God, Jesus Christ. That's, call, that's using God's name without caring who he really is. This is kind of the opposite of buying a new car because that's your idol. No, when you're going to walking through life, live in the presence of God, okay? So when you say, oh my God, mean it. Look what he has done here, okay? Mean it. It's not using his name in an empty or vain way. It's being cognizant of who he is. And that's a practice you have to get into every day. Thank you, God, for life. You say that in the morning? When you eat breakfast, thank you, God, for this food. Right? When you give here, whether you do it here or online, I don't care. Do you stop and say, God, thank you so much for blessing me that I can give. Whatever you give, I don't care. I don't track that. Somebody else does. Do you do it with that attitude? Thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, he goes on down through here. says, the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. God made them all, but he rested on the seventh day. Okay, that doesn't mean God stopped working. Even the Jewish rabbis knew that because babies are born and people died. So God is still at work. What that means is he rested from accomplishing what God had him accomplish. Okay, do you realize how significant this is in an ancient world? Where you work seven days a week, seven days a week. We have stories of women that are in the field working. They give birth to a baby, wrap it up, and go back to work. That's called slavery. And our God says, and all the gods back then said, you better work harder. You don't work hard enough. And our God says, no, no, you can rest. Take some time off. It's okay. It's interesting. This is the one that makes its way into the New Testament in a very fresh way under the new covenant. Okay, because at the heart of Sabbath is the, is the whole issue of shalom. That's where Shabbat comes from, okay? And so we are to experience shalom every day in our families, in our work environments, not to be anxious. This has a financial cost. If you work six days instead of seven days, you're not going to have as much money. So behind it, in the, behind it, behind the veil, is the idea that I'll take care of you. God says you don't have to worry. Take a day off and enjoy each other and enjoy me. Rest. Sabbath. Okay, those are the first four. Now we're going to move to the whole section on loving people. Honor your father and your mother, 
so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Why do you live long in the land? Two reasons. One is, when you're taking care of your parents, you're communicating to a younger generation behind you of how valuable elderly people are. They don't have to worry. But the other thing is that God is the one that says, I will, I will extend your life in the land if you do that. Paul quotes this at Ephesians. Children, obey your fathers, which is the first commandment with a promise. You will live long in the land. You guys know I've been in Montana helping my father-in-law. So I just got back from there this week, and I said, why don't you let me bring you to Colorado? You have no family in Montana. You only lived here 19 years. Why don't you let me bring you back to Colorado where all your great-grandchildren, your grandchildren, you got 11 great-grandchildren running around. He is telling everybody, I'm going to go to Colorado where my grandchildren and great-grandchildren are. He's telling everybody that. That's, I said, let, it, let me bring you back here, and we can love you. You know, we can invite you home at Thanksgiving, and you can be with us. You can be with your family. Why? Because of this right here, okay? It's very popular in today's world to be very critical of the older generation, much more than any other time in the history of our country. Parents, you know, uh, it's a big thing now in counseling to bring out the trauma clause. I've dealt with several young people that have gone through counseling, Really good counselors know how to handle that. Most of them don't. I'm looking at the good counselors here. There's one right there. She knows how to do it. Yeah, right. One of my former students at Denver Seminary, Darla, she's a licensed counselor. And she's very good with several others. They know how to do it. And so the goal is not to blame your parents. Even if your parents were the catalyst, you still had a choice. And it's learning to honor. Now, I recognize, I want to be sensitive, that some of you have parents that are blatantly evil. I get it but not most of you. You have parents who made stupid mistakes. One of my good friends, Don Payne, who preaches up here regularly each year, he said, uh, he's the academic dean at Denver Seminary, when his daughter turned 18, he said, here's all the money I have saved for college. You can use it for college or you can use it for therapy. I recommend therapy. (laughs) Because we abuse our kids, we hurt them. But that doesn't mean we're evil people. That means we make mistakes. Honor your parents. Treat them with honor. Okay, then you go on down here. You know all these. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't lie about their integrity. Don't do it. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Okay, his wife, female, male servants, donkeys, everything that he has. Why? You see, the very heart of this is learning to put others first and trust God to take care of you. Love God, there's four. Love people, there's six. Okay? And a culture that honors this is blessed. They are. Because this is at the very core of the way we're created. So picture a culture that everybody's driving around showing off their wealth. Okay? They're forcing others to work seven days a week. Uh, The older people have no honor. They're murdering, committing adultery, stealing. I mean, San Francisco, last year, the year before, passed a law that, uh, that I forget, $963 or whatever it was. There'll, there'll be no uh, criminal action up to that. So you have people with carts, you've seen the social media. They steal up to 900 bucks, okay? This is called the unraveling of our society. 
That's really what it is. Because these are designed to give us freedom. When we live this way, when we stop murdering, we stop committing adultery, we stop stealing, we stop lying about each other, we stop showing off, we stop coveting and stealing things from our neighbors, we begin to trust the Lord, we begin to experience true freedom. The violation of this leads us right into slavery. That's what it does. It leads us right back into slavery. So these Ten Commandments, every nation on the earth, picture it. Every nation on the earth honor these. If every human lived this way, you know, we'd have heaven. That's what we'd have. And as a church, this is what we are called to honor right here. Every other part of the Mosaic law after this is case law. How do you live this out in this cultural context? And then when the culture changes, how do you live it out in this cultural context? Now under the new covenant, how do we live it out in nations around the world? How do we do it? People say to me, in our country, you can't tell, and they mean it negatively, you can't tell a Christian from a non-Christian they look alike. I say, praise Jesus. That means our country, country worked really hard to put in place values that are designed for humanity. You want to you see what it's like when you stand out as a Christian? Come with me to Cambodia. Come with me to Nepal, to India, to Kenya. You'll stand out like a sore thumb, not because of your color. You'll stand out because you're a Christian. You guys have not enough appreciation for where we've come as a country and what we have. And the answer is to get back to these core basics right here. The Ten Commandments. They define who we are as people. Father, thank you for your incredible goodness that you stepped in a very dark world, a very chaotic world, a very blatantly awful, sinful, horrible world where nobody had dignity and it was abusive. And yet you began the process of changing world history. And Father, some of the countries figured it out and um, ours did for a while. Uh, Sometimes I think we're losing it. Help us to restore that back in our country, the goodness that you brought about. Thank you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to shine, as Paul says, like stars. Shine like stars in the night for the people around us that are so confused, trying to make sense, and they can't. Thank you for blessing us. In Jesus' name, amen.